Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Steve Albini, who's one of the great record producer, engineers, recording artists too. You know a bunch of the records that he's credited as producer on. He also engineered them and mixed them most of the time, um, unless someone took the record away and fucked him on the mix uh, in his language. But any one of these records would be kind of like enough. He made Surfer Rosa with the Pixies, an album that's one of my favorite albums of all time and was my most listened to or second most listened to album of 1993, PJ Harvey's Rid of Me. Um, I'll never forget the first time I heard that record, uh, and I'll never forget just how many days I listened to it to try to understand why it sounded the way that it sounded in my headphones. Um, a little album called In, in Utero that I know he kind of um, sometimes wants to uh, distance himself from, but still, there's just no reason to, as far as I'm concerned. And also, his his own band, Shellac, uh, if you don't know that band, they have an album called Dude Incredible that's mind-boggling and um, I love, so check that out. He's also um, a writer who is uh, able to write really lucidly about many questions facing artists and how artists should think about the world uh, and how those who are adjunct to artists ought to think about their responsibilities uh, and duties and, and role. Um, and he's also a great poker player uh, who's won a couple of uh, events. And obviously all these things are things that I think about um, a lot. And uh, so, hey, man, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let, let's start Let's start here. You've worked with a lot of geniuses. You've been called a genius. You definitely have disavowed that kind of thing. Even when you talk about winning poker tournaments, I've heard you talk about uh, how surprised you were. But could you just for a second, like give me a working definition of genius? And, and maybe I'd take like one for the arts and one for life if you think they're different things. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're related. Um, when I use the term, what I mean is someone who's uniquely brilliant that and has had unique insights or unique invention inventions you know in in music it's people who have um not relied exclusively on received wisdom and tradition but have cr genuinely created something something that you you know they made a kind of music that you couldn't hear before they did it you know um, those, those people are, are geniuses. They, they change the way we have to contend with music because they made a new kind of music. Right. Um, there aren't a lot of those people, but, uh, when they show up, they're generally either completely ignored or they change the entire course of music. And when they're completely ignored, it's because what they're doing is, uh, doesn't suit the temper of the times and often it takes a long period of reflection and influence before those people get their due um in the sort of general world i think genius just means anyone who understands um their tasks uh, on a deeper and more inventive and more creative level than anybody else who does what they do like um there what you see like it can be somebody like Ichiro who reinvented hitting from the first base side of the box, you know, 
or uh, it can be somebody like Vlad Guerrero who reinvented hitting from the other side by just swinging at every single thing that was thrown at him, you know, um, like there, there are ways to approach things that are disparate, but that are each revolutionary and, and new. And that's the, that's what I think of when I think of genius. I think of somebody who's, who's doing things in a way that nobody else ever thought of doing it, or they came up with ideas that nobody else had ever come up with, or they're executing things uh, on a level that required their invention and their, you know, their unique approach in order to be done that way. Yeah. Um, you know, Harold Bloom uses that word strange to talk about this strangeness Yeah, when someone's able to create a work that even as it tried to maybe imitate its predecessor, ha it, it, uh, he always talked about it hitting off of it in a strain in a way that creates not weirdness, but strangeness. And I, I've always lo loved that as, as something to, to as, as a way to contemplate what what that means. So to, to, to you then, because it ties in, I think, to the gestalt of what you do. So do you, uh, are, are you less interested in what others might, uh, uh, iterative genius, I mean, iterative, iterative work um, that purports to evolve something as opposed to, uh, changing it, the kind of genius of a Paul Simon, let's say, right? That's uh, an iterative, a more iterative genius than a genius that um, uh, uh, um, destroys all that came before. Uh, I guess what I guess what impresses me about anything is not just excellence or novelty, but un a uniqueness. Um, and so someone like Paul Simon, who is a uniquely gifted songwriter, like he's in the, in yes. the craft of songwriting, he's uniquely gifted. And uh, that, I mean, I recognize that, but his music doesn't mean much to me, you know. Uh, and, you know, I relate that to somebody like, um, there's a... Uh, an experimental musician named Alvin Lussier, who who has done a bunch of compositions for non-traditional instruments, for um, systems where he'll set up a, a system of um, amplifiers and microphones and other objects where the, they they create their own music, um, things like that. Um, so that that requires an insight into the way to make music that's absent from someone who's a craftsman. Um, a craftsman is taking received tools, received wisdom about quality, um, and, you know, can, in, can be inventive within that. But what they're doing is instantly recognizable as the thing that they, you know, as, as their school, the thing that they were doing. So Paul Simon, songwriter, right? Instantly recognizable as a songwriter, as someone who tells stories with songs. Someone like Alvin Lussier create sound that's not often instantly recognizable as music, um, but uh, has to be accepted in a musical context because it, it has a musical intent. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you have to, you have to listen to things differently after being exposed to someone like him or someone like John Cage or, yeah. um, you know, any of these people that, who have sort of cracked the paradigm and, and done something that hadn't been done previously. Well, yeah, it's, you have to almost um, 
change your own receiver, your own antenna to under to tune in to a frequency that you didn't even know really existed in that way before. Yeah, I mean, I recognize for me the um, there are uh, iterative geniuses or geniuses who work inside a form who are really rewarding and who offer within the form, I think, like, uh, you know, um, rewards that uh, lead to um, insights for me as a listener that 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 make it feel that new or different. But the, um, I have always devalued, for instance, the Beach Boys because Chuck Berry is the person who um, did something that was not merely iterative. He and his piano player created something, a kind of storytelling that had never been in music before, um, outside of country music. And like uh, the Beach Boys just stole the melodies. <laughs> and that always seemed strange to me that they're lauded the way that they are. I'm, I, I have to admit that I'm sort of a victim of my circumstances. Like I'm young enough that um, the Beach Boys were already corny when I first heard yeah, them. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm 56, so me too, you know? yes. So uh, the people who were around and a active in music at the time that the Beach Boys music was coming out were impressed by it. And I think there is a level of craftsmanship there and there is some invention there and all of that. There is there's a kind of a whimsy and a kind of a naivete to it that I uh, that just doesn't hit me. Like when I when I hear that, it sounds corny. It sounds cheesy and nothing about it resonates with me. It none of it seems new. None of it seems creative. None of it's, you know, but I, I admit freely that I'm a I'm a I'm a victim of the fact that I was. You know, I was brought up in music that was all influenced by the Beach Boys. And so when I heard the Beach Be Beach Boys, there was there was nothing special about it. And I, I mean, I can contrast that with somebody like Buddy Holly, who also had been an incredibly influential. Right. But he was uniquely good at it, like his music, his melodies, his sentiments all struck me as being pure and beautiful, whereas all of the the people who were sort of copying from him really didn't didn't make much of an impact on me at all. Yeah, whereas, um, and plus he had, you know, for a while, uh, Way Waylon Jennings playing bass for him when his regular guy <laughs> yeah. was out. So that's another, uh, like, you know, check mark for Buddy Holly. Uh, but, but, but this is why, you know, Chuck Berry to me, even before Buddy, um, was the guy who really, I don't know how much you've spent time listening to Chuck Berry. I mean, but. I'm like anybody else who plays rock music. I've had to, had to endure countless cover versions of Chuck Berry songs. Uh, when you actually listen to his stuff, like, I mean, t take it as a given that he was a creep and a horrible person. Yes. Um, he did do things with the, the way his lyrics, yeah. uh, told a story under a style of music that he invented. So, you know, I have to give him credit for that. Uh, again, uh, just owing to m the circumstances of my exposure to music, it, it was already slightly corny by the time I heard it. And so it didn't resonate with me deeply. But now if I listen to it now with like a sort of a m mature appreciation of everything that goes into making music, I can appreciate how new and how different his music was. And and his you know, he did have some genuine skills with respect to telling a story with words. Like, I, I think his lyrics are underrated, for example. Uh, his guitar playing is the thing that everybody talks about, how he invented this, like, um, you know, hot lead style of guitar playing. And yes, that's clever and all. And uh, and it did 
sort of um, create an idiom with which other people could be corny and awful. Um, but when he did it, it was new and unique, and I appreciate that. But I, I think his, I think his lyrics are by far the best thing about his his music. A hundred, yeah, we're in total agreement. He invented that, and I agree with you um, uh, about him as a person. I too went back to his music, so I had all the same feelings you did about the corniness of it, and then went back ten years ago or so, and because um, uh, I'd watched the documentary again and realized, right, he really was the progenitor um, of modern, because you, you always heard the father of rock and roll, and I agree with you, it felt corny, because this gets to a, uh, it gets to a question, which is, uh, I don't think it's unfair for you to say the Beach Boys were corny to you, because I think that that speaks to the fact, it ties into what you said about genius, sometimes it taking a long time for that music to really surface. And so, like, their corniness might actually mean that it's not that significant long-term, what they did, as opposed to what um, John Cage or John Cale and Lou did in The Velvet Underground. Like, be, because it, it can never be, the idea of The Velvet Underground has become corny, but the music can never be corny, right? You yeah, say I'm I mean, I'm, I'm an enormous fan yeah. and I was heavily influenced by the Velvet Underground and specifically John Cale. I got to meet him a couple of times and, um, uh, it, you know, I was I'm not starstruck often, but uh, I, it, it was kind of incredible meeting him. Um, and I got to see a performance a few years ago at the Primavera Sound Festival. He did a performance of the entire Paris 1919 album with a small acoustic ensemble. Um, and it was incredible. Um, and I, I mean, I was nearly in tears watching it. It was uh, like a record that had meant a lot to me, a guy who'd meant a lot to me, music that specifically like was the sort of thing that I aspired to, you know, it's all, you know, one of my, you know, in my pantheon of like the great musical achievements is that record. Right. And watching him and hearing him play it live. And it wasn't like rote by any means. He'd obviously had to sort of reinvest himself in this music and the ensemble that he was playing with was great. Everything, you know, everything about it was just like letter perfect. And then at the end of the show, he said, all right, we'll, we'll be back in a few minutes with some new material. And I was like, Oh fuck, I should leave now. I should fucking leave. And, but I couldn't bring it. I couldn't bring myself to walk out, you know, and then he came back and played some new material and uh yeah anyway i that that remains a really great memory of mine seeing him play well that's that. really fascinating right because also that genius thing doesn't always like there are some artists where it just stayed um I, you know i don't know but there are some where where there are these moments in time where they intersect with the culture because i was going to ask you this like because of the writing you've done, and I've read a bunch of it. Um, do you think that great art has to have, be filtered through a prism that has a political point of view, an awareness of the world um, around it? Can it ignore that stuff com completely? Meaning, how does it have to exist within its time for it to be meaningful, important, great? Yeah, I mean, there are different, different kinds of art address different things like if you're if you're making art or music that's agnostic of its sur surroundings right um 
that isn't making any cultural cultural references that isn't trying to speak to a moment i i think that is a valid approach i think it is a valid approach to write music that you're intending to be timeless or based on like deep notions and first principles and not related to what's going on in the world around you right i think your conduct as a person absolutely has to be grounded in a reasonable and like a a a charitable and honorable interaction with the world as it is like if if i mean this is a, a thing that comes up when people discuss cancel culture or whatever where you know that there is this, uh, this idea that you can separate the person from their creative output and there is a class of art where the person is the creative output like um where the person is presenting a first person uh uh narrative and that's what you're reacting to right so if you tell me that I should remove that person from that first person narrative and not consider what kind of person that is that's telling me these stories then you're saying that that what that person is doing is purely decorative that that's just sound it's not his story their story it's just a string of words and I refuse to to listen that way I refuse to think of things uh, to I, re I refuse to you don't want to alienate you can't you don't want to alienate the work from the source of the work in that way you're saying there is some work that exists on its own that is monolithic and exists as a as a piece on its own which can and it can be regarded on its own terms that definitely exists but that is not by and large the kind of art and music and theater and comedy and writing that we consume. There are things like the Bible, where the Bible exists as a series of fables, and, and those fables have to be taken as they are because the context in which they were written, the political aims of the people who were writing those stories, the turf battles, the family feuds, all of those things, the context that created them is all lost into dust except for a few arcane scholars and you know what about the so, notion yeah but what about the notion of the artist putting the very best of themselves and their aspirations for the themselves in the work uh as almost a beacon of what they wish for because for me i i read hemingway let's yeah. say and I completely can, even in his, even in Movable Feast, I, which I, is an urtext for me, Movable Feast, but I can separate sort of like the behavior toward wives and children, uh, the, you know, and now later he regretted a bunch of that. But, but um, clearly, like Hemingway, I guess, maybe a way to think about it is it's suffused with, in a way, his own disappointment itself when he's putting those characters and those stories out there is that because it ties to music i think uh, yeah. and and the culture so how, how do you how does that hit off of you how do you I, respond to that i think what you know about the person that is making art like that that is narrative what you know about that person informs your understanding your comprehension of it and i think that's perfectly valid 
um, you're being charitable and saying that the the shortcomings of the person are being addressed in some way in the work or that they are being, you know, offset or addressed in some way in the work. And I recognize a kind of a fictional self-image uh, that goes along with the sort of macho man, chest beating alpha male bullshit that yep. he, he ascribed to. So uh, I, I, you know, I think it's valid to to know things about the people whose art you're consuming. And I think it's important that if your appreciation of their work is tempered in that way, um, yeah. that what you're not doing is letting either the work or the person off the hook and saying, you know, I'll give it a pass because of that. I'm, you know, this is, you know, this is a, a racist narrative and it has a horrible subtext but this person was charitable and i think this person oh yeah the reverse thing for sure you can't let yes i couldn't agree with you more you can't say oh the, the work was a racist but the person was was kind i i agree and it's a great way to, to draw the 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 challenge that and yeah sure like hemingway creates these uh, there's a some one could say some anti-semitism but i don't read it that way as a jew i don't read it that way i'm an atheist jew obviously but i don't i don't i don't I don't read it that way, but more to the point to the area in which you've spent your life is like, are we, should we not listen to Miles Davis records? You know, if I love Bitches Brew, should I not listen to Bitches Brew? Because I know what was swirling around Miles Davis, particularly because that's a genius, right? That's an there's a whole, there's a whole lot involved with that. Like there is this kind of authorial notion that is granted to people like Miles Davis. Well, when, I'm asking, yeah, that's what I'm asking you. Right. When when what you're listening to is the product of 18 or 20 people working at the peak of their abilities um, with, a, you know, with a figurehead, you know, finding them or yelling at them or whatever. Like I, I, so like I have a little trouble with this sort of auteur image of anything, any kind of ensemble thing like that. Right. I, I feel less that way about people who, were monomaniacal and control freaks where they have dictated everything, every single thing that happened around them. You have somebody like James Brown who could have any five people playing behind him and it would sound like James Brown, you know? Uh, so like that's, I, I think all of those things temper my appreciation of everything that I listen to, whatever I happen to know. And there are a lot of people about whom I maintain ignorance, you know, <laughs> and uh, partly for the sake of softening the blow, um, if it, if I ever have to like not appreciate something because I learned something, you know, I completely I get it. It's it's just a fascinating thing to I don't know. It's just a fascinating thing for me to think about. And I get, I love what you said about Miles. And I it's weird. I'm not an ex like um I say this about <laughs> certain bands where the people who are fanatics draw such lines. Like um, I'm sure you think Rush sucks, but I grew up listening to Rush when I was little. And the point is, I I would never say compared to Rush fans, like I've only seen them in concert, you know, seven times and only watched the documentaries through, so I don't qualify. It's the same thing with Miles. Like, I'm not, you know, like I, I've only, I can't fight with the Rush fans about- So what let the, me, let, let me, let me temper um, this impression you have that I hate Rush. I, literally, the only thing I don't like about Rush is the music. Like, that's awesome. Uh, I get it, I get it. Everything I know about them as dudes makes me root for them tremendously makes me admire them yes like 
Getty Lee was an old school rotisserie baseball guy. Yes, yes. And he had the same keeper league with the same five guys or whatever, you know, for 40 years. I absolutely admire that kind of like stoic constancy, you know, like, or I think that's incredible. I think the efforts that they went through to like preserve the integrity oh, yeah. of their band like the the way that they maintained this whole idea of we can do this as a three piece you know like that whole thing no matter how florid their music got they still were able to do it as a three piece like that documentary about them where it's you amazing. where you it's amazing meet their families and like learn the circumstances that the band started under and all those things like i I admire every aspect of that band, save the music, and I'm willing to overlook the music in order to to maintain an appreciation of those guys. No, that's awesome. But all I was going to say about that is like, so Miles, it's the same thing. Like, you know, I've listened, I know all the records, but I'm not, uh, I don't qualify as an expert. But like, um, and so Kind of Blue, I totally think what you said is exactly right. You get John Coltrane and Bill Evans in a room with Miles Davis and who really, you're talking about three of the greatest who ever picked up those instruments, um, if Bill Evans picked up a piano. But, but <laughs> Bitches Brew feels like Miles did. I don't know, to me, Bitches Brew feels like Miles did it. It's why I said that record. And it's like, can you, knowing what you know about his life, invest in that? Or should we not invest in it? And it's something I think about all the time. Yeah, I, I try not to think about it in an active way. I just let what I, what I know about people informs my opinions of, about their thing. Like there are a lot of people whose music I just don't give a shit about because I, I know what kind of people they are and I'm not interested in music made by people like that, you know? So like, yeah, I mean, this started by asking about really whether the music needs to you know i asked you if the music if the if the creator of a piece of art needs to make a choice about the the point of view uh related to the mores of the age in which they're living um and and you kind of flipped it in a fair way to say more important you know how do they live their life than whether the work is suffused with that right that I, I think both are both notions can coexist. And one of one thing I think is true is that we should not hold artists accountable for unpleasantness or ugliness in their art because the the point of the art is to be illuminating in some way. Yes. And one of the things that you're going to be one I think it's in I think it's quite important to illuminate and explore uh, harmful behavior, harmful, harmful ideas, har harmful tendencies, because otherwise they're, they're sort of mysterious. And when they're mysterious, people allow or allow themselves to make excuses for them or to uh, ignore them or pretend that they're not real and uh, or, or fantasize about them and project all kinds of things onto them. Like there was this, satanic child abuse panic that happened in the 80s where various places and people were accused of doing satanic rituals in child abuse and always you know it's very pizzagate kind of uh reminiscent yes. like just utter nonsense right and people went to prison for this right and careers were built on it and and i succumbed to some of that because it it 
you know, when I say succumb to it, I mean, I bought into some of those notions because it, it fit in with an, another idea that I had that all of us are capable of great evil or great. Uh, you bought into the notion that I just want to be clear. You bought into the notion that there was this movement of satanic worship. Not that you didn't that buy into becoming a satan. I just want because you. I just want to make sure people listening understand. You're not yeah, saying yeah. you became a satanist. You're saying no, you no, believe no. that I, there I'm were satanists. Had, yeah, I would see this stuff in the popular yeah. media, and I would think, oh wow, I guess they found this child abuse cult, right? As opposed to as opposed to the the fact, which is, oh, oh wow, uh, an overzealous prosecutor was exploiting a a, a, a mania and a panic uh, and building a career for themselves uh, by these frivolous prosecutions of people for this, you know, what what would have been a heinous crime had there had it existed, you know, those those that's the reality of it but as just as a passive consumer of popular culture or whatever you you i wouldn't i didn't grasp it on that on that level and uh you know i feel some measure of shame that i wasn't able to see through things like that because i mean i i've seen hucksters before i've seen like people talking bullshit and selling well nonsense. i grew up i grew up 15 minutes from where there were those murders and the murderers it was a drug deal gone bad a bunch of high school kids and the murderers um, tried to capitalize on that whole thing and and throw the authorities off the scent by writing that they did it for Satan, only they spelled it Satin. And so it was the Satin murders uh, in Northport, Long Island. And so, yes, I, I completely know about that kind of hysteria. But that's all related also because of the way that that's the reason that stuff gets propagated is because there's money at the end of that uh, rainbow. And, um, you know, you you've written a lot about the way in which money can um, pervert uh, uh, and, and the way that I, you know, the, the arts and, and a way I thought to ask you about it is that um, like it seems to me you framed your own engagement in the arts in reaction to or at least with a heightened awareness of the way in which capitalism bends artists to its will. Can you talk a little bit about that? The well, the fundamental thing about capitalism that's incompatible with art is that capitalism is purely about money, and uh, it's indifferent where the money comes from or through what mechanism the money is generated. It just wants money. And artists and creative people just want to express themselves like that's a it's a it's a drive. It's similar to hunger or the mating urge or whatever. Yes, they want to create things. They want to express themselves. They want to they they want to be in that kind of communion with other people who through a, a creative process, right? So you have one group of people who desperately want to do something because they're driven to do it, and you have an audience that's eager to hear that sort of thing, to have that kind of communion with those people who are expressing themselves. And then between those two, there are mediating fact, mediating things that where money changes hands sometimes, like tickets are bought, records are sold, um, music is appropriated and used in films or commercials or whatever, and licenses are paid for those things. Advertising is sold on the back of broadcasting or access to the, this music. Like money changes hands at the margins. 
there's no there's nothing monetary about music and art like it's done for its own sake like cave people did it before the notion of money even existed right so uh they're they're fundamentally unrelated and what capitalism tends to do is it tends to make things dependent on the capitalist relationship on the extraction of money it tends to make both the people and the creative the the audience and the creative people dependent on an extractive relationship like you, your music will only be heard if we press these records and we will only press these records if you sign this contract that is extortionate uh and because you have this drive this urge this compulsion to express yourself and be heard by an audience you will sign this this exploitative document. I mean, it's a ver as you're framing it, it's a, a version um, of one of those fables you were talking about in the Bible, <laughs> right? Uh, right, because in a way, if this art stuff is your religion, your original sin is uh, the temptation that you don't have to just play your music or paint your paintings or put on your show to this small group of people in this little way, in a, a way that's affords you the sustenance of the work, and maybe, hey, if people like it, they'll give you room in their house to crash in. And it seems to me there is this little, there is this level of idealism. I'm not saying that as a loaded word either, um, mm -hmm. that you hold a little bit as a North Star and idealism about the purpose of art. And, um, but I do wonder if it ignores, or, or if it just, uh, the world that the artist has to live in. Um, and, and so that temptation, well, we can talk about the temptation uh, on your second record deal, but you know, and, and yes, all the origin stories are biblical uh, in, the, in their nature, but uh, you know, Jay-Z, who I, I will say is a great artist, uh, is, I, I go back to his records all the time. Like, you know, it was clearly Jay-Z understood there was a, he could, he could take the art and, and use the art and very pure as an artist, talk to anyone who's ever worked, that guy is so pure in the moment, he's at the mic. But then had an awareness of, well, I think I can flip this and use it. Is that, is that definitionally fuck up art? I'm not, you know, does that kind of thinking in your mind definitionally fuck up the art? I, in the same way that as we discussed, like what, the more you know about someone, affects your opinion of their art, their, their art, their output. The more I know about the intent of something or, or what I know about the intent of something affects my appreciation of it. And, uh, and the context of things changes their meaning to you. Uh, there's an example I've used before and forgive me, I'm going to use it again. The, uh, the Iggy pop song, lust for life, is an extraordinary piece of music, right? You know, it, it's it's driving, it's propulsive, it was inventive, it's minimalist in construction, like admirably Spartan, and it's very plain in its intent. It's a hedonistic celebration of drugs and fucking and living a an, an unhinged life. It was written during a period of addiction and indulgence, and it was sort of done in a frenzy. Uh, 
And all of those things are evident in it. And in its original context, when that came out as a celebration of that during a very conservative swing, during a during a, a, a swing back to a conservative um, environment, it, it was laudable and revolutionary. And it changed, you know, that that one piece of music, that that album, Lust for Life and uh, that song uh resonated with a lot of people as being a kind of a a a beacon like yes you can celebrate these decadent and indulgent and harmful things in your life you can take them as seriously as you can take any other notion right it was it was incredible and revolutionary and um you know in its grotesqueness it it like achieved a kind of purity right that song many years later was used as the theme song for family cruises on the some fucking cruise line where that song is played and you see like a fucking shrimp cocktail uh and uh couples dancing and a shuffleboard and kids on a water slide or whatever with lust for life playing in the background and that changes the context in which that music is understood as saying, you know, lust for life is no, it's not about, you know, taking it in the ass and uh, doing hard drugs in a, a forbidden part of the city. It's uh, about Republicans on their taking a, a holiday uh, on a cruise ship so that they can be surrounded exclusively by other white people and play shuffleboard and visit ports of call and exploit the local craft industries or whatever, you know, like it changes what the music means intentionally The you know, the, the inventiveness and the decadence and the, and the personal nature of that song has been co-opted and kind of stolen. Well, I under, for, I, I un, yeah, I understand. For the sake of a superficial, for the sake of a superficially catchy phrase, right? The the meaning stripped away from the idea of a lust for life, where you're going to be indulgent and decadent and shorten your life by enjoying your life. Like that's been taken away from it, and it's now, it's it's just a bouncy jingle with a catchphrase for this commercial use it changes the music to do that to it right and uh i i have to and i i have to say i have infinite respect for iggy pop and uh i admire him and what what he's done in music and i cannot fault anybody for trying to make a living so the fact that that song being used in that way has rewarded him for having done it i think is it's not dishonorable right there's nothing like fundamentally wrong or evil about that but i have to accept that it has changed that the perception it changes it changed your person i want to let's it changed you what you're saying and it's important because this is for you as an artist obviously and and when you I mean, I know you, you often say producer engineers are not the artist in question when they're making the record. You're very clear on that. You've made that yeah. point many times, but you're an artist. You make your own records also. And you're but you're well, saying for, 
primarily I'm a fan of music. I listen to music right. for it for because of how important it is in my life. That yes. you know, and I'm speaking as a fan. I'm speaking as someone who was touched by that piece of music and where that piece of music would help to form my worldview and help but to this also the guided you as a practice but it guided you as a practitioner too right this point of view guides the way you approach your life as an artist i would yeah think. among other things it was a formative piece of music for me yeah and i'm saying this distinction that you've now made about that piece of music wanting to keep these things a certain way and not well, let them i mean i have to say i mean that the song had 40 years or so in the in its original context maybe that's enough you know i'm not i'm not completely i'm not disparaging it i'm just acknowledging that recontextualizing it has changed it well i'm talking about what you know whether by definition capitalism bends artists to its will over, over the long term and and i it sounds to me like it's something that you're concerned about and have been over over your life that relationship. I guess right? I guess what I would say is I, I respect capitalism less than the art that it is often paired with. Yes. I'm suspicious of capitalism because it's it seems like a sociopathic endeavor just to extract, you yeah. know. Um and I mean I, I run a I, I run a business. Of course. This building that I'm in is part of the business that I run. And in you know, and in a capitalist context, I am obliged to turn a profit, you know, otherwise we have to shut the doors, right? I don't see that as the purpose of my business. The turning yes. of a profit is like, it's like me drawing breath. I have to do it, right? But I don't get up in the morning thinking, oh, great, I'm going to breathe. No, that's day. not, the, that's you not know? the teleological purpose. That is not the teleological purpose it, uh, for you and your business. Like, that's why, Mil you know, Milton Friedman was wrong about the purpose of all companies, obviously. Uh, well, for a given, for an arbitrary value of investor, literally yes. all they care about is the money. That's why they will invest in prisons and they will invest in war machinery and they will invest in extractive i mean look yeah the, the show i make is uh, the show i make is all truly all about that and uh there's a lot of surface stuff going on but like that prison thing was in season one of our show like that's 100 percent um something that i'm we've been concerned about that's so funny hearing you talk about lust for life I hadn't thought of this this way exactly, but um, I'm just a couple years younger than you, man, but like that couple years. So the record, I was sitting in my bedroom and um, uh, listening to LIR before LIR turned to just new wave. It was freeform and people who died came on and like that song. And then that book, Basketball Diaries, life changing. And that's not an exaggeration, like life changing. I listened to people who died 10,000 times and I read Basketball Diaries till their pages were crumbling, right? And the yeah. movie, I've never made it past one minute of the movie. It, it grossed <laughs> me out. And I'm a movie maker and a filmmaker. Like a, that's, but the movie grossed me out. And the whole, now I met Jim a couple times. I loved that guy was a saint. If there, he was a walking saint among us. But, uh, and you know, the poem he made, it wrote about Kurtz, the best thing anyone's written about Kurt, I think ever. Um, but I hated that, the movie got made and I and and it changed I like 
the re you know the re-record of people who like people who died was supposed to be this ugly, horrible thing. Guys who could barely play, a guy who couldn't sing, and a pure expression of grief, and and the will to survive expressed in those guitars, right? And that got destroyed in a way by the by the movie. So I, I but I don't know if that's capitalism or if that's just about our. Yeah, it's the temptation, right? What the well, artist on, is on one hand. On one hand, I feel like my preciousness about the things, the the art and music that has meant a lot to me, like I I, I hold it very dear, right? Yeah. And that that is a kind of a precious um, attitude, right? On the other hand, the people who made that art yes. and music get to decide how it's done. Like I am, I I remember being asked at one point when there was this sort of a mini spate of bands reuniting for a a big uh, revival tour. Right. Like Pixies did it. Pixies you know. did it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bands have done it. And I I was asked in an interview at some point, you know, like what, what were my thoughts about these bands doing this? Were they just cashing in? Were they, you know, like, does this seem like a legitimate thing? And I'm like, if, if I was in a band and my bandmates and I decided to start playing again, and anybody else in the whole fucking world had an opinion about it, they can go fuck themselves, you know? Uh, so I, I, uh, on one hand, I recognize that, like, if something changes for me and it no longer means what it once did, or, uh, or I have to modify my understanding of it because of a new context, that's on me. That's a listener problem. That that is absolutely not the responsibility of the people who did it, who made it, who sold it, who became part of its new contextualization. That's that's not their problem. That's my problem. And I I understand the, those dominions. And I and I don't think, um, I don't think the artist has any responsibility to me to babysit me and my notion of their work. Right. Like if you're doing something, it's your creative expression. One hundred percent. You get to decide the context that I'm going to hear it in. You get to decide everything about it. And you don't owe me anything. And that's, you know, I can recognize that and and accept that and and still feel a slight twinge of disappointment when that fucking TV commercial. Well, I'm going to go to a place that you're, is not going to necessarily be logical, but you, it'll be logical to you, actually. Um, I was talking um, to Joe Posnanski about the Dusty Baker's decision to pull the pitcher after the sixth inning. And it, it not only did it enrage me, it wounded me. I'm not kidding around. It wounded me deeply um, because, like you, I grew up thinking about baseball a certain way. And I grew up with an appreciation of what a pitcher would have to put themselves through to deal with the pressure of a no-hitter and the reward on the other side of that for the pitcher. If they could get there, they get to be a god. They get to be a god among uh, humans. And, uh, and it was... You know, baseball is a long slog uh, when you watch it for a season. And one of the things you get if you're super dedicated at times is the chance to live in the hell of will some um, the hellish nerves of will the no hitter happen. 
And I was so outraged by it, but it's, it's this exact question. It's like, they were all perfectly happy about it because uh, they won the game. Dusty got his World Series at 73. But the precious fan in me was deeply wounded by it turning its back on like the purpose of why baseball's, you know, the George Carl, why baseball's different than everything else. Um, it hurt me. And yeah. it, no, not in a real way, you know, I'm not real. it didn't, but it did. I, I will say like it, that night I was really fucking annoyed. You know, I, 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 you know, on a, on a superficial level, it would be nice to see somebody take a shot, have a shot at a no hitter. That would, that would be nice. Right. But I also see that that is kind of a romantic notion. And yes. in the same way that sabermetrics changed the romantic notion of the, you know, eyeball scouts, know. just, you know, sizing a guy up. Like modern baseball is about is a statistical game. And it's and, you know, you sometimes you get unequivocal answers that uh, are are not going to make people happy like things that you you know like well this is what this is the move this is what we should do and if we don't do it we're 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 doing bad baseball and i does that change but does that change the nature and make them uh, like the george carlin routine basically is about football being mechanized kind of war and baseball yeah. being um art and does uh and and does those do those kind of decisions force a kind of mechanization on on the well, game that changes it at its at its at its heart what drew people to it there is a parallel to our our common hobby of poker yes where the current best players in the world and the best practices in, in poker are related to an analytical solution of the game like a game theoretical Exploitative, non-exploitable play certain, in game theory optimal of play, certain yeah. situations where the sort of romantic notion of poker is you stare through the soul of the guy and decide if he's got it or not. Like you know, and there are, you know, there are tells and reads that are legitimate decision-making tools in poker, but it um, the degree to which like a cold-blooded assessment of things and an analytical approach has proven itself to be the the strongest baseline behavior to me sort of settles it like yes well if you if you do things in a way that is theoretically unexploitable then you are going to avoid these exploitation th moments. that's great and true but uh even the ed millers of the world would say but in a given hand, if you know something, yeah, do that thing, yeah, right? Absolutely. So that's the that is the because of course you're you're right. But why is Daniel always one of the best players in the world? The reason is because he, unlike Phil, he's willing to do all the work to get as close to the game theory optimal. But the additional skills he has of understanding the human interdynamics make him able to make some plays. Within the ranges, taking all that into account and applying a human like element he just, to it. He just, uh, I just saw a, a podcast interview with Daniel Negrano where he was talking about how modifications to um, uh, 
sort of solver strategies where um <laughs> I I think this is kind of a misapplication, but I actually admire it. Um it's like, well, in this situation, 30% of the time I'm supposed to bet a small amount, and 60% of the time I'm supposed to bet a medium-sized amount, and 10% of the time I'm supposed to bet a large amount. I'm going to choose to be bluffing 30% of the time and use the 30% of the small amount to be my bluffs on the basis that the percentages will work out and I'll be saving money when my bluffs get get called. So I think I think that's kind of a misapplication of the of the idea that your range will be behaving this way statistically. Yeah. Well, but I also admire that uh, the there's a kind of a a corrupting of the notion, like you know, like I am going to learn the solved the solution for this in for this moment. And then I'm going to construct a narrative where what I was going to do anyway fits the solution. Like I got, that's well, that's but, but I always, I, that, yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, it's interesting because like, I mean, the same way for a normal person to say, I'm going to go record a bunch, a bunch of Mississippi chic songs and make them sound even more haunted and weird. It would be a total fool's errand. But when Bob Dylan did it, it's like, oh, that's fucking amazing. So like there are people who, because of a whole bunch of different things, can just kind of proceed in a way that nobody else can, in, I think. But what the fuck do I know? Um, just a couple more things. Uh, it's so fascinating talking to you. Because I, I, there, are, there are a couple of things where I just have to ask because I found myself going like, I don't see the world this way. Um, you're one of the best, most successful record producers in terms of just making records that have lasted so long and are so important to me. But I, I don't understand why you devalue the role of the producer so much. You know, um, you, you state over and over in all sorts of different places that a record producer should never get points on a record, should never be compensated near to the way the band is. They're not the artist. It's not their medium. They're a helper. They, you also state a producer who doesn't know how to work the board or now that, you know, Patches is not a producer. Um, and I understand that as an intellectual, completely understand it as an intellectual position. But then in a practical application of the matter, like... Mutt Lang wasn't a record producer in your mind, and, and Mutt Lang who then wrote half the albums and completely changed the trajectory by himself of those artists' careers. I've never met Mutt Lang, so I don't have a per, but, but I think about that, that guy was the artist, right? Or, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, how would you look at a question like that? So, millions of records made, right, I'm using Mutt time. for an example, I'm using Mutt as an example on purpose, right? right? Like, millions of records, made over time all all of them in one way or another had a producer in yes. the in in the case of uh, you know most rec records done on a shoestring the band is operating as the producer they're making all the creative decisions right in a few cases you know in in more professional settings there will be a a, a professional producer uh, uh, or a titular titular producer on the record right, right? what we remember about music is rarely the production 
what we remember about music is like you'll hear you'll hear a melody or you'll hear a chord change or there'll be a particularly aching vocal performance or there will be text of lyrics that strike you right those are the things that make the music connect to you as a as a as an audience member the the production is a, a matter of detail it it matters i suppose you know it matters in the same way that um you know the sale price matters i guess like things they they matter but the mm. the degree of significance that's granted them seems it seems like you can calibrate it in a number of ways and one way that you can calibrate it is who gets paid the most and in a lot of instances the record producer is paid more than the band because if the band remains unrecouped in their yes contract they make nothing Yes. The producer gets paid his advance regardless. I should say their advance regardless. And in a scenario where the producer earns a royalty, the producers paid their royalty and that royalty comes directly out of the share that would otherwise have gone to the band, right? It's their money. It's literally the band's money that is used to compensate the producer, right? So I just cannot abide a notion of my role or anyone, any parallel person's role in making a record that makes the band who wrote and performed that music, whose lives were wrapped up in the creation of this band and the expression of this music, who spend 250, 300 nights a year out building an audience yes. that will be receptive to this music, who have done all of the psychic suffering to get to the point where that music could be meaningful that the band that did the many hours of rehearsal and like learning and interpersonal suffering and sufferance to get to a point where they could play that music their choices uh, their their you know their unique skills and abilities their unique insights all of that stuff makes the music and the guy who, sitting in the chair who said i think we should do another take that guy gets paid more, right? That makes no sense to me. I think it's ethically insupportable, unsupportable. It's certainly unsustainable, as ha has been shown by the fact that a lot of producers ended up in mansions and a lot of bands ended up broke, right? So I just won't participate in that that view or in that in that worldview. I just won't participate in it. I won't. I won't have anything to do with it. Pay me for my time. I'll, we'll, we'll come to an agreement about what my time is worth. That's fine. Totally fine. I don't need to be hung around your neck like an albatross for the whole of your career. And I don't need you to be beholden to me forever. Every time you make a fan and that fan likes your music and decides to buy your record, I don't need you to pay me a tribute for, for that, you know? That that's the that's what it boils down to is I just I recognize the relative importance of the people in in the relationship between the the audience and the band and the music. Yeah, that gets back. It's I mean that is as romantic a view as my baseball view, <laughs> and you know because it doesn't speak to Bob Ezrin telling David Gilmore to go home and 
bring that little find a piece of music because there's something missing and comfortably numb shows up right like it it ignores i to me anyway it ignores um uh lanois creating all the music for oh mercy now maybe you're because it sounds like you're also speaking to um to the artists in a way which is saying let's choose who we're going to really call artists uh and maybe the more fair thing would have been to say mutt lang was a member of acdc because he was in Def Leppard. Like maybe that would have been a more fair thing to say. Well, I think it's, I think ACDC is a great example. But Def Leppard with Mutt more because he a really a wrote. A but ACDC, I, I, yeah. I'm going to stick with AC. ACDC sure. is a great example yeah. because they made fantastic sounding, remarkable music, remarkable records before Mutt Lang was in the room. Very different and, records, but remarkable records. I agree. They're one of my favorite bands ever. Yep. Right. What's great about ACD, what's great about Highway to Hell and Back in Black is ACDC. And if you listen to those records, the production on them is immaculate. I have to say they are benchmark records for how great a rock band can sound. But they are unrepresentative of Mutt Lang's career. Like if you listen to other records that Mutt Lang made, they're deeply layered. They're manicured. Every note is put in place with a microscope and tweezers, as George Massenberg would say. Uh, they're intensely stylized. They don't sound like a live performance. They sound like a sculptural creation, right? Those ACDC records are unique in that. And I, when you hear those records and read his name on the back of it, the, the image that it that that I get is of Mutt Lang strapped into a chair with a belt and being prevented from doing what he did on every other record he ever made. <laughs> though, though I will just, then we can then move off this, but if, if you have ever heard Brian Johnson tell the story of you shook me all night long, Mutt invented that. You know, Brian had a three times as long meter and a whole thing and Mutt basically you can find the story. I don't, again, I don't know much, but for me, what it does, why I wanted to get to it there, way, that way as a ladder back to you is the feedback at the end of Rid of Me with the shouting and what we hear as that track disappears, that is as much why that thing worked, what that entire sonic landscape is why... 30 fucking years later, I can put that record on and my Amy, we used to drive around listening to it and walk around. Amy, and if I put that on home, it immediately snaps us to a certain moment in time. And in a way, doesn't it devalue your own contribution to something like that? I, I didn't do that. I, 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 didn't, I didn't tell them to do that. I didn't do that. That was the band playing their own music. Uh, literally, like... Well, you I'm recorded being... it. You set the mics. You um, mixed the record and left. That's like you, didn't you? I mean, that's yeah, yes. But I also, but I recognize that I, I, I just don't. I'm uncomfortable taking credit for other people, other people having a good idea, and me having. You know, I've, I've been sitting in the chair when other people had good ideas. That doesn't make me better at it. You know, I, I, I'm. I, I like to think of whatever attention I get from having worked on some great records. I like to think of that as reflected light from what is 
somebody else having a really great day in the studio and me being lucky enough to be the guy that recorded it. I, I mean, I've, I've worked on a shit million records, right? There are a lot of them that you could hear and not have those kind of revelatory moments, right? And it, by the same token, that's not my fault. <laughs> sure. Reflected Light is really awesome way to talk about this. And um, I've taken up enough of your time. Steve, um, whether you think so or not, you're a great record producer. You've made some really important records. Uh, actually, as somebody who p puts music in my shows and movies, I will say one of the great joys for me is when just to return to something you said, like Bruce, who doesn't really give his music very freely to stuff, watched the show. I explained what we were going to do. He read the script pages. And when he's given us music, yeah, it, 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 I think what it does is it, it, it lends our work something that has this place and then maybe there's an additive thing that happens as an experience to the to the viewer. Um, and maybe that's just not a purist's way to look at it. So Yeah, I think know. that's a very I think that's a very honorable way to approach it. Like I, I recognize that when somebody like I I'm occasionally approached by other people to have my band's music used in their movie or TV show or whatever. We generally say no, not not because we're opposed to it but because we're very careful about what we those associations that i just described um and in most cases i would be happier if they just used the music and didn't tell me you know well <laughs> like, it's too bad because i put dude incredible in a script today but now i'm gonna fucking rip it out sorry uh <laughs> no because you're not gonna main, want us to, to the use main it reason but... that we th like if i have to if i have to evaluate it on its own terms that's going to take a lot of my time like i have to learn about all these things, these associations, and I have to be, I want to be circumspect about it, right? Whereas if somebody was just using our music to say something about the, the mood or the place or the person in the, in the, in the, the, the action, like, I don't need to know about that. That's none of my business. Well, you but, do because you know, you're, you're going to get, that's, that's you're like gonna get, using the color orange or, you but, know. Well, you do because like, I, I am going to leave it in the script and you can then just reject it because that's a funny story to me. But, um, uh, you know, you're going to get paid something for it, right? And that goes back to the question. Yeah, you don't give a fuck. I mean, I I would likely, like, it has come up in the past when, like, there are sort of bootleg or semi-official things that use our music. And I find out many years later that my music was used in, like, a, a skateboard video or yes. some, you know, something, whatever. And the the person who put it in there put it in there for a reason. Like they wanted to say something about what was going on on screen by using this music, and that's a kind of a flattering thing. Like to to think that our music could be meaningful in that way. That's kind of flattering, right? And I would rather have them get the satisfaction of using it and use it use it in a way that doesn't involve me. Yes. I would rather just it just happened and they got to have the whatever effect they wanted without involving me, you know, because if I have to evaluate it, then I have to know what kind of you know, are these people Nazis? What is, you know, what happens? I mean, the, the laws of the land don't the laws of the land don't really allow that kind of thing. That's the thing. Right. So 
you, you would have to you know, set it up on a server where you were like, I don't care, take it. People have done <laughs> that kind of thing, right? But we we were actually toying with the idea. Like I wanted to, I wanted to um, release our last album in the public domain. Like I thought our last record should be re should have been released in the public domain, like with a little notification on it saying, yeah, this music is available in the public domain. The idea being that, you know, the the reasons often argued against that, like the reason people often talk about how copyright is an important thing instead of a, an, an awful encumbrance on art and culture. What they, what they say is, well, somebody could just make their own version of your album and sell it. Fucking try. Right. <laughs> right. No. Like, <laughs> to, okay, it's a lot of work to make a record. You're going to do that <laughs> and then you're going to sell it to whom? Anybody who wants one already has one. It's fucking ridiculous. You know, uh, man, Thank you for, yes, of course, that's an absurdity. Um, Steve Albini, you're still on Twitter. I've I've escaped. Uh, people can only find me on Instagram or TikTok, or they can email me at yeah, the moment. Yeah, I don't know DK how terrible I'm going to be on Twitter. The whole, it seems to be, it's turning into a shit show at a really rapid pace. I, I had to bail um, for now. I said I was just going to, I'm on a hiatus. That's what I'm, I'm just waiting and, and seeing, but I'm not, I'm not. Um, tweeting anything, but you can, are you on Instagram? Do you put pictures up there? No. Ever? All right. Well, I, for I, I think I'm, I think I may end up on Mastodon. A bunch of people that I follow are going to Mastodon. So I may end up going there. Me too. I can't figure it out yet. If you figure it out, maybe you can teach me. Um, cause I can't figure it out. You get there. It seems it's very con con confusing to me. Um, shit. I wanted to ask you about all these old style producers, like the Richard Perry's of the world and all that shit, but we can do it another time. Um, Steve, sure. Al Steve Albini, thank you uh, for being here. Hey, look, if people get something out of this, they can go back and listen to PJ Harvey and they could go uh, listen to Highway to Hell. Everyone listens to Back in Black. People don't. Go listen to uh, Walk All Over You on, on Highway to Hell and uh, see what that does for you out there uh, in listener land. Um, hey, man, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me, man.